0: Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. A few years ago, a woman by the name of Rachel Denhollander was allowed to confront her abuser might recognize this name. Larry Nasser was the one who had abused her, sexually abused her, while she was he was acting as her doctor. He was also acting as the doctor of many gymnasts in the Michigan area, uh, in regard to uh, specifically the uh, Olympic gymnast team and and others. And as she's testifying before this judge in in. Uh, kind of uh, as they're seeking out justice for Larry Nasser, she asks this question. She says, How much is a girl worth? How much is a girl worth? Of course, in the context, she's asking a very pertinent question. How much were the lives of these little girls worth? Were they worth a life sentence? Two life sentences? Nasser was eventually given 175 years for seven counts of sexual assault of minors, plus other things, other sentences that were to be served concurrently, but he will spend the remainder of his life in prison. Was that justice? I'm not saying yes or no, I'm just asking the question. See, today, I want to appeal to you concerning justice. And I've sensed that many of us, if we've kind of... uh, sense that the world is increasingly intrigued by the concept of justice, and we've sensed that they do it wrongly and they they kind of approach it sinfully, we've kind of tended to roll our eyes at the concept of justice. Specifically when we bring up the notion of social justice. And we roll our eyes and we become dismissive. I've heard someone make the critique, they're saying it's hard to imagine any concept of justice that isn't in some sense social. But we get to the point, right? The world has great interest in justice. And that's not really what I'm talking about. In fact, what I want to do today is I want to tune us in to the horizontal understand, not tune us into the horizontal understanding of horizontal understanding of justice, but rather tune us into the vertical understanding of justice that God himself is very interested in justice. In Jeremiah 9 God speaks of Himself in in this way. He says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Let not the strong man boast in his strength. But let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in, In these things, God Himself is said to delight in justice, in doing what's righteous on the earth. And so this morning, I'm interested in tuning into the heart of God. If God is interested in justice, we should be too. Today, we'll see the consequences of of what it means to turn a blind eye to injustice. And we'll see the consequences of, of disinterest and overinterest in justice, the consequences of the two poles of appeasing and avenging, and ultimately, we'll look at the flawless plan that God has for His justice. And so I want to take this thought into our, our text this morning, our kind of overarching big idea. It's on the screen in front of you. It's in your bulletin. Just in justice often escapes us because sinners tend to respond to sin sinfully justice often escapes us because sinners tend to respond to sin sinfully. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like you look at a situation and it's like justice is is getting away from us. It's like sand that's just kind of falling between our fingertips. We, We look at the situations in the world and the more heightened a situation becomes in the media, the less likely we are to find justice. So, sinners... Respond to sin sinfully. We're going to see this in three phases. In verses 1 through 7, Dinah is defiled and Jacob seeks to appease. In verses 8 through 17, Dinah is detained and Jacob's sons seek to avenge. And then verses 18 through 29, Dinah is delivered but Jacob's house is divided. Our text this morning is so heavy. These issues press on all of our hearts as we consider what it looks like to do justice I'm going to ask the Lord just one more time to just bless our time in this text would you join with me Lord we, we do we approach your throne we ask you to, to show us yourself and your desires from our passage this morning we recognize that our justice is often very slanted that in our sinfulness we, we fail to carry out justice or we over execute justice So, Lord, make straight what's crooked. Allow us to see your heart. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to start in chapter 34, verses 1 through 7. Dinah is defiled. Jacob seeks to appease. Chapter 34, verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Jacob, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. And so Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, get me this girl for my wife. It's pretty Clear what's happening here. Dinah goes out to see the women of the land, and as she leaves the safety of her household, she's exposed. Now, let's be clear. We're not victim-shaming here. It's not to say she's guilty or complicit in Shechem's sin, but she has left the safety of her house, and the text highlights that. What happens is that Dinah is seen by a Canaanite named Shechem. Now, who is this guy? Shechem is a Hivite. He specifically is the son of Hamor, a seemingly wealthy landowner, right? So here's Hamor and his eldest, most respected son, Shechem, and they live in this city, and this family is well-respected. They, they are honored. But Shechem kind of sees Dinah uh, and takes Dinah. This is a familiar wording in the book of Genesis. If you remember back to Genesis chapter 3, when Eve saw that the fruit was pleasing to the eye and she saw that it was good for food, she took, right? See and then take. In Genesis chapter 6, we see that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they choose. And so there's this pattern throughout the book of Genesis that we see what we want and we take what we want and it is kind of in violation of God righteous standard. And the end of all of this, the text tells us in verse 3, Dinah is humiliated. She is afflicted. Shechem's actions had particular consequences in the soul of Dinah. And if you're here this morning and you've experienced some type of rape or sexual violation, I just want to say right now that we hurt with you we stand alongside what this passage says at the end of verse 4, or excuse me, at the end of verse 7, that such a thing must not be done. We want to make no equivocation that any kind of violation of sexual Uh, Nature is out of bounds. We affirm that the context of marriage is the only place for valid sexual expression and we recognize that what has happened to you if you've been violated in this way and what has happened to Dinah is an injustice. What happens is this ongoing sinfulness. In verse 3, Shechem wants to marry Dinah. Verse 3 says his soul was drawn to Dinah. It it harkens back to the language of Genesis chapter 2. A man shall leave his father and mother and be uh, bound or, or united to. In fact, he loves Dinah and speaks tenderly to her. You know, there's another example of this kind of story that happens in 2 Samuel 13 where Amnon, the daughter or the son of David goes and rapes his sister, Tamar, David's daughter. And after Amnon rapes his sister, it says in the text in verse 15 of 2 Samuel 13, he hated her with very great hatred. What happens here is the opposite of that, where Amnon is driven away from this woman that he has violated. Shechem is drawn to Dinah. But yet something strange is happening here in verse 4. Look at what he says. So Shechem spoke to to his father Hamor saying, get me this girl for my wife. Even though he's speaking tenderly to Dinah, when he speaks in her absence, he belittles her. He speaks beneath her. Notice there's no apology from Shechem or from Hamor. There's no owning of wrong. In Shechem's godless world, there is only the pleasure of sex, the desire of possession, and the hunt. So what we see in verses 5 through 7 is the response. See, Jacob and his sons hear of Dinah's plight. Look with me at verse 7. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter, Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with the daughter of Jacob. For such a thing must not be done. See, what happens here is Jacob has his own kind of response. And what verse 5 tells us is that he holds his peace. Jacob is given the news of Dinah's defilement, of Dinah being wrong, but he chooses to say nothing. Later, we get a bit of perspective on this. If we were to fast forward down to verse 30, Jacob critiques his sons and the justice that they bring that Jesse read about this morning. And he says this, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. You've made me stink. You've made me a stench to the nations. As he sits silently about his daughter's suffering. But Jacob's sons stand in contrast to this. In verse 6 and 7, we see that they come back. And what's described about them in verse 7, they tells us that they were indignant and very angry. We don't know whether they heard the news and chose to come back or they were coming back and heard the news, but they are now home and angered at this wrong done to their sister. See, as we kind of just pull back from this scene for a second, uh, the one who's doing wrong here in this section of the passage is Jacob. Jacob ignores unrighteousness. If we were to go back, if we were to kind of flip back into Genesis chapter 18, Abraham is interacting with God in Genesis 18, and it's this passage where he's saying, hey, if there's 40 righteous people, if there's 30 righteous people, are you still going to destroy the city of Sodom and Gomorrah? If, if there's five righteous people, are you still going to destroy the city? And in the midst of that conversation, God says this to Abraham. He says that he and his descendants were to do righteousness and justice. That Abraham was approached by God to be one who cares and is concerned about righteousness and justice. You know, those two words are actually pretty linked. In both Hebrew and Greek, righteousness is kind of a word group and and justice is kind of a word group. And they're really kind of linked together in chapter 1. Of Genesis, we saw that God wanted to fill the world with his image. He said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So God wanted to fill the earth with his righteous image bearers. And now that man has sinned, he's introduced himself to Abraham so that Abraham would also kind of fill the earth with this promise and that they would do righteousness and justice. Uh, But Jacob turns a deaf ear to his own daughter's suffering, and he turns a blind eye to unrighteousness in Shechem this morning what we see is that Jacob should be one to bring both retributive and restorative justice. Now, let's break down what those two terms mean. Retributive justice is the defense of righteousness by bringing penalty to lawbreakers. Retribution is a word that just means punishment inflicted on someone for a wrong or criminal act. It's, it's Larry Nassar's double life sentence or, or the speeding ticket that we got on the way into the church this morning. Yeah, right. Some of those finger, fingers point back at us too, right? Retributive justice is interested in, in bringing the punishment in keeping with, with God's righteousness. In the end, God himself will repay. That's what Romans chapter 12 reminds us of. Like, do not repay evil for evil because God will bring justice. He will repay. Wrath, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So we should be interested in retributive justice. But we should also be interested in restorative justice. And that's the the justice that is righteousness that that, that looks to help those in need. It seeks to lift up the lowly. The word restoration means to kind of bring something back to its original form or original state and restorative justice looks to address the spiritual, physical needs of those who have been affected or afflicted by other sins or a sin-cursed world. It's the donation to the food bank or the ability to stop and talk to a homeless person and just treat them with respect. It's, it's the care for orphans and widows. It's uh, gathering yesterday together and caring for those who care for orphans. See, as we think of these things, we see these things, we think of countless biblical examples. Mary, in Luke chapter 1, is talking about a God who exalts the lowly but humbles the exalted. And so God himself is interested in this kind of evening out of the social paradigms. Jesus himself was friends with tax collectors and sinners, but he confronted the religious authorities in their self-righteousness. He's bringing back this kind of equity to people. And speaking of race relations with individuals, to kind of dive into something practical here this morning, I've heard people say things like this, and I myself have said this. They'll say, well, I've never owned a slave. I, I never did anything wrong to a person of a different color. It's true. You owe no retributive justice. There's no penalty waiting for you because you violated another person. You've enslaved someone else. But let's ask this question. Should we be interested in bringing restoration to others? not just retribution. Should I receive punishment for wrongs done that I haven't performed? Should I be interested in bringing restoration to others? Do you realize that up until 1968, a person could be denied a loan for any reason? In 1968, the U.S. Congress passed the Fair Housing Act, which uh, said you cannot discriminate against people based upon their, their sex or their... Race. This made it rare, up until this point, it made it rare for a minority to have the same access to funds uh, to purchase house or start a business. And as you can imagine, this severely hampered uh, the minority's ability to accumulate wealth. Even today, statistically speaking, the amount of generational wealth that's amongst our black brothers and sisters, our friends, is not in keeping with their white counterparts. Now, you and I didn't deny any minorities their financial privileges unless you have a secret past life that I don't know about. But if God sees all people made in His image as equal, shouldn't we consider this inequality? Shouldn't we have some humility, some kindness, some gentleness? there's all kinds of issues that float above this issue of concept of justice And sometimes we think only about retribution when we should be thinking about restoration, and sometimes we think only about restoration when we should be thinking about retribution. But what I love about this text is it doesn't just call out the Jacobs. He's not the only unjust participant in our passage today. As Jacob kind of bows out of this conversation that's about to happen, Uh, Jacob's sons kind of elbow themselves in. And the scene becomes increasingly chaotic as the passage goes on. So look with me at verses 18 through 29 where Dinah is detained. She's held captive, and Jacob's sons seek to avenge. Look at chapter 34, verse 18. Excuse me, that's not correct. It must be verse 8. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to his father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give you uh, whatever you say, uh, and give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. Let's just stop there for a second and consider. See, Hamor appeals for Jacob's daughter, Dinah, right? Verse 8, you know, we see that Shechem so badly wants to marry Dinah, and so Hamor is appealing to Jacob and to his brothers to give them Dinah as Shechem's wife. But then in verse 9 through 10, it becomes a little bit more insidious. See, Hamor appeals for them to become one nation. Hamor doesn't just seek to ask to be in-laws with Jacob, but also to blend their two peoples. Now, we recognize that throughout Genesis, this has been an issue. Remember, Abraham sent his servant in Genesis 24 to go get a wife for his son Isaac, but he doesn't want to do it amongst the Canaanites. He wants him to go back to Pad and Aram to find a wife for him. And then when, when Jacob receives the blessing from Isaac, Isaac sends him back to Pad and Aram to get a wife from amongst Uh, their people, rather than from the Canaanites. And so this has been an issue throughout the text of Genesis. And Hamor kind of just uh, steps right into this generationally held value, and he doesn't even realize it. And what happens in the midst of this kind of appeal is that Shechem can't hold it in anymore. In verses 11 through 12, he just inserts himself, and he starts kind of blurting out of his mouth his words. Verses 11-12 show that Shechem speaks out of turn. This interruption shows us the true heart of of Shechem. What he's interested in is the bride price. It's interesting that last week we saw Jacob wanted to buy off his brother uh, from all the wrongs that he's performed against him. Well, here Shechem is trying to do the same thing with Jacob and Jacob's sons. And now this young Hivite is seeking to buy Jacob's daughter. It makes verse 31 a valid critique that, is is our sister to be considered a prostitute? Because this is entirely transactional in Shechem's mind. Note the response from Jacob's camp in verses 13 through 17. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. And they said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised? Uncircumcised? for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But, But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. First, where's Jacob? He's in the room, but he's silent. And amidst Jacob's silence, the other sons speak up, and they become more assertive and more aggressive. And what they say would be great if they would have stopped in verse 14, right? Uh, We cannot intermarry with you because everybody that's a part of the promise has to be circumcised. If you look in Genesis 17, uh, the way that God spoke of this covenant is you had two ways to get into the covenant. You could be born into the covenant and take on the sign of circumcision, or you could be A slave. And so, really, Jacob's sons are kind of misrepresenting the situation here as they understand it. Now, later on in Deuteronomy, there will be other ways to enter into this covenant community, but as it's been portrayed to us in Genesis, Jacob's sons are kind of distorting the words of God for their own purpose. And the sons go on in verses 15 and 16, and they hold out the possibility of becoming one people. According to the brothers, this would require circumcision amongst all of the city that Shechem and Hamor live in. And when we get to verse 17, we have to see it as a threat. Look at verse 17 with me. If you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. See, later on in verse 26, when they go and get Dinah, there's kind of a representation there that Dinah's still in Shechem's house that she's being detained, as it were, until this whole situation plays out. So the the sons are threatening to come and get Dinah from their location uh, and, and take her away. But all of this just smells like tragedy on the horizon, doesn't it? I mean, outrage is an emotion that's not quickly forgotten. And I don't think that these sons of Jacob are quick to forget. And what we see is just absolute tragedy verses 18 through 31, Jacob's sons kill and pillage Shechem in the city. Verse 18, The words pleased Hamor and Hamor's sons Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house, so Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, these men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as our wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to deal with us to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. See, Shechem convinces the city to be circumcised. And notice Shechem's sales pitch here. He kind of Overemphasizes certain actions and underemphasizes other things. And it is itself kind of an injustice as he misrepresents the case. First thing he does is he emphasizes their participation in Jacob's wealth in verse 23. Uh, Will not their livestock, their property, all their beasts be ours? Hey, you're going to get rich. All you have to do is get circumcised. He emphasized their access to Jacob's family. In verse 21, let us take their daughters as wives and let us give our daughters to them. He minimizes the requirements. In verse 22, he says, only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us and become one people. It's just this small little thing. See, if we read this quickly, we miss the things that Shechem didn't say. First, he didn't say that he stood to gain Dinah by them becoming circumcised. He kind of glossed over that fact, didn't he? Second, that their wealth would also be shared with Jacob and his family. And then finally, that the sons of Jacob were threatening attack if they weren't circumcised. Sure enough, stupidity prevails on the town and they get circumcised. People inexperienced with the rite of circumcision using kind of rudimentary tools would probably create more pain. And so they were kind of going to heal for at least a a week or so. And what we see is we pick up in verse 25. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. See, minus Reuben, Simeon and Levi are the two eldest sons of Leah, making Dinah their full-blood sister. In the next chapter, Reuben is going to be one who disqualifies himself, and we'll see that next week. But here, it's Simeon and Levi's turn to disqualify themselves to be the one who receives blessing. See, the other brothers also come in then, and they pillage the city. While Shechem had promised these riches, this wealth, these wives to uh, his city, the exact opposite comes to pass. In verse 29, all their wealth, all their little ones, all their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. See, what happens is that one rape has led to a massive slaughter with ongoing injustice. Jacob's sons have leveraged the sign of God's covenant as a weapon. Abraham's descendants, who were meant to bless, have brought death and destruction. And yes, Dinah is delivered, but so many wrongs have been done. See, if Jacob is slow to pursue justice, Jacob's sons are quick. What happens is they distort this retributive justice. Jacob's sons have the moral compass of an angry mob. And when the power of punishment is placed in their hands, it just quickly gets away from them. It reminds me of, of, of being an eight-year-old on the playground, right? And something happens. There's an infraction. Somebody fouls somebody else in a basketball game. Somebody does something wrong. And quickly, things escalate. And all of a sudden, you have this lord-of-the-fly situation, kill piggy, cut off his head kind of thing, right? Things naturally spin out of control until a foul in a basketball game turns into a fist fight. And Jacob's sons exhibit this kind of playground justice. It is unflinching in its cruelty, and it's unprincipled in its application. But I love what the author of Genesis does in this passage. He invites us to consider the chaos in verses 30 and 31. I think this is kind of a a tipping point, a reach, a climax of the passage where we are meant to feel the tension of what is happening here. Then, Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Listen to this. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. Now the second poll, verse 31. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Jacob criticizes his son. You've made me stink. And Jacob's sons criticize Jacob. You let your daughter be treated like a prostitute. See, All this time, we're looking for that descendant from Adam and Eve. We're looking for that person who would come and be the snake crusher, the one who would dole out justice and righteousness like God had called Abraham to. And we're wondering is Jacob that guy? Are any of Jacob's sons that guy? And one by one, it's like we're crossing them off the list. We, we recognize Jacob cannot bring righteousness and justice. And we recognize Simeon and Levi cannot bring righteousness and justice. And we're just crossing the names off the list. And there's only 12 options. See, if someone from Abraham's line is to do righteousness and justice, it would seem that these candidates aren't fit for the job. Genesis 34 and 35 are going to lay out in front of us why Jacob's sons aren't allowed to bear the blessing. Is there any candidate to rule this nation well? See, we can leave chapter 34 in despair, can't we? We can see. Humankind, when they're left to themselves, and they want to do justice, they want to do right, they want to bring about retribution for wrongdoers, and they want to restore those who have been violated, they they just kind of falls through their hands. But I want to find hope this morning. As we kind of pull back from Genesis 34, I want to find hope and see that God does justice best, and that we do have a God who brings about justice on the earth. Let's just start here. People don't do justice well. Can we just acknowledge that? We don't do justice well. No matter what style of government, whether it's communism or capitalist or, or uh, you know, sovereign states or democratic states or whatever else it might be, people tend to, to execute justice poorly. We tend to overapply and underapply justice based upon our program. This is what we see here, right? In regard to justice, Jacob is apathetic, and his sons are overzealous. Derek Kidner describes this passage in this way. He says, these responses are too perennial, two, the number two, too perennial but sterile reactions to evil. That is, they do nothing to stop evil from happening. You might be here this morning, you might just object and you say, this is why God gave us his law. God created standards and systems of punishment To some degree, you're right. Law has this kind of formative effect even on unbelieving people. That's why we still have a Judeo-Christian ethic largely at work in our midst. But the law wasn't meant to make people righteous. Romans 3 is clear about this. It says, by works of the law, no flesh will be justified. You can't become righteous by doing works of the law. And Romans 3 goes on. It says, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. See, the purpose of the law, according to Galatians, was to lead us to a knowledge of Christ. In our rebellious, law-breaking sinfulness, God exposed the nature of our hearts to show us that we had sinned. And, and in our sinfulness, the Spirit leads us to trust in the law keeper, Jesus, for forgiveness of sins. But what you and I tend to do, even after we're redeemed in Christ, is that we tend to keep the law unlawfully. We apply the law to others in a slanted, measured way. We're reminded this morning of uh, some of the New Testament When you put the law into the hands of sinners, what you get is Pharisees and Sadducees. Parents know how hard it is to make just decisions, right? Timmy and Susie come to you because Susie called him a name he's asked her not to use. But Susie only uses that name when Timmy won't play with her like he said he would. And so all of a sudden, you're left with an ethical knot to untie, and you're just a dad who's tired and wants to watch the football game, right? And so what you do in your frustration, everyone goes to the room and is grounded for a month, for a month, for a year, whatever else it might be. And you're frustrated, but doggone it, you get to watch the football game. Is that just? Is that right? Isaiah 59 says this, The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. I heard the story uh, recently of a company that uh, came through, you know, some, some of COVID-19 and, and the pandemic and had to make some cuts And in the wake of making all these cuts, it kind of came to bear that 96% of those people that they put on, um, put out of work or whatever, 96% of them were white males. 96%. This company has a policy of hiring minorities, of giving minorities and and, uh, females preference and hiring practices. And it stands out that in an effort to have more equitable practices in hiring this company has become inequitable in an effort to avoid prejudice they have become prejudice see in their sinful attempt to do justice they have brought injustice because sinful people respond to sin sinfully With that in mind this morning, that I want to turn our attention to something else. Because our God is a God of justice, He has a plan for justice. I want to turn to Isaiah chapter 42. It's on the screen in front of us this morning. Isaiah 42. In the midst of Isaiah... Uh, Isaiah is addressing a lot of injustices that are happening amongst the nations, whether it's uh, from uh, the Assyrians or the Babylonians or whoever else it might be, he's addressing some of their injustices, and he's promising that even though they are the ones who give the wrath of God, who bring the judgment of God, they will themselves receive the wrath of God and receive the judgment of God. And all of this kind of culminates to the later chapters where God is promising His Holy One. He's promising His righteous servant, His suffering servant, who will come. And one of these passages is Isaiah 42. Isaiah writes this. He says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. See, what we see in Isaiah 42 is that Jesus is the means of God's justice. Verse one, we see that Jesus was anointed for justice, that the Spirit is upon him. As Jesus lived and breathed his ministry on earth, both in Matthew and in Luke. He's baptized by John, and he receives the Holy Spirit. He goes out into the wilderness, wilderness to be tempted, and then he comes and starts his public ministry. And so what's happening is that the Spirit of the Lord is upon Jesus to do righteousness and justice. And so as he is anointed, he faithfully advocates for the downtrodden, and he brought restoration to Matthew and Zacchaeus and Mary Magdalene and others. He brought criticism to Pharisees and Sadducees alike, and someday He will return and bring about true justice on the earth. But it's not just that He's the anointed one for justice. Jesus is gentle for justice in verses 2 and 3. He is not self-exalting. Look at verse 2. He will not cry aloud. He will not exalt His voice. Verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break. Faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He's not going to be self-exalting. Rather, in humility, he will be considerate of the fragile. Jesus will approach the diners of the world. Jesus will acknowledge their hurt and their pain. He will not break the bruised reed. He will not snuff out the smoldering wick. We see this throughout the Scriptures. Matthew 11, Jesus tells us that he's gentle and lowly. Jesus deals with us with gentleness. You know what gentleness is? It's that idea of power under control. My son and I, we throw the ball in the basement And luckily, it's just this little light nerf thing because dude has no gentleness whatsoever. It's like bouncing off my head. He's just chucking it at me, right? Gentleness is this idea that we deal with soft things, not out of lack of power, but gently. Lowly, he's not self-exalting. Deuteronomy 22 and other places in the Old Testament says that he, God, executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. So Jesus is gentle in justice. Finally, Jesus is the earth's hope for justice. In verse 4, go back to that slide there, Owen. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. The coastlands wait for His law. What's that about? That's the Gentiles. The Gentiles are waiting for the kingdom of God to be fully and finally established so that the law might rule over them with equity. See, God has a plan for justice and it's centered in the person of Jesus Christ. So, Jesus is the means of God's justice. The gospel is the message of God's justice. If Jesus is the means, the message is, is about how we talk to other people about God's justice. And first and foremost, we see God's justice clearly in the cross. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 For our sake, he made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. God has placed His retributive justice upon the person of Christ so that all who believe upon Jesus Christ will have their sins forgiven as the penalty has been paid by the sovereign Son of God. Your penalty and my penalty for our sins have been laid on the shoulders of Jesus Christ and God has poured out His wrath upon His only only Son so that you and I would not receive that wrath. God's justice, first phase. Second phase is that God gives us the restoration of Jesus' righteousness. That verse, 2 Corinthians 5, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. That God actually exalts us by giving us righteousness through Christ This is God's justice. This is God satisfying His wrath and bringing about the exaltation of sinners, God exercising His justice. So Jesus is the means, the gospel is the message, and the church is the messenger. Again, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, we are ambassadors, as though God's making His appeal through us. See, all of this kind of speaks to us this morning. No matter how we think about justice or social justice or whatever else that's floating around today, we should be concerned with justice. As the people of God, we should be concerned with this principle called justice. See, I'm concerned this morning about the way we speak about justice. We've acknowledged that the world has hijacked this term, justice, And they've sought to restore justice in unjust ways. They've responded to the sins of society sinfully. But I'm concerned this morning about the response amongst amongst my friends, amongst myself, amongst evangelicals at large, that we've already conceded defeat, that we've handed over something that's near and dear to God's heart, to the, the powers that be, as it were. That we no longer advocate for righteous practices, and when we hear the term social justice, we roll our eyes and we scoff. We perceive that the issues of race race and sexual mispractice, those are liberal issues, and so we back off. Yes, we advocate for the unborn like we should. By the way, today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. We recognize the wrongs of abortion. We, we see that as heinous. If you're here with us and you've experienced an abortion, we know that there is forgiveness available. We advocate for the unborn, but we ignore the plight of the poor, the immigrant, the sexually abused, the trafficked, the drug addicted, the orphan, the widow. Largely, we embrace a narrative that, that says that such people have earned their own heartache because of their malpractice, their lack of skill at life, that they have earned their difficulties. And meanwhile, ignore how many times we should have earned our own difficulties. What did you and I deserve in our sinfulness? And yet, what have we received in Christ? See, here's the thing. We cannot take in God's generous justice at the cross and be shut off to the needs of those around us. We cannot take in the glories of the gospel where my sins have been fully paid for, an undeserving sinner found blessing and righteousness in Christ and then hold off blessing from someone else. We cannot pray, thy will be done on the earth as it is in heaven and remained disinterested in earthly affairs. Some of you might be thinking I'm speaking about political involvement. I'm not. I'm really just talking about being Christian in the world. It might involve political involvement. It might just be being a good neighbor to your neighbors around you. It might mean just treating everyone with respect and dignity. See, as we close this morning, I want to just lay out some things to think about when we're thinking about justice. I have three things for you here this morning. First, remember the gospel. See, God in the gospel has shown us his self-sacrificial justice. He has shown us that he has laid down his own son, In sacrificial service, he did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. And just as kind of a a diagnostic question, if, if your justice asks you to sacrifice nothing, maybe it's not the kind of justice that God's after. If your justice is just an idea in your head that never calls you to actually serve or engage with someone in need, maybe it's lacking. See, justice is an implication of our new life in Christ. There's been kind of a debate. Some people uh, foolishly kind of came out maybe five or ten years ago, and they started talking about how doing justice is the gospel. And I think that's kind of a distortion. Uh, I would say it differently. I would say that the gospel, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins, has implications for the way we do our life. It has implications for how I consider the needs of those around me. And so justice is an implication of our new life in Christ, not the center of it. So remember the gospel. Two, can I just advocate for you to seek understanding? For me to seek understanding? Read books and articles by those who are outside of your tribe. Do not let Facebook or Twitter or social media be the primary diet of your knowledge base. One of the things that's come out recently is uh, social media platforms kind of curtail the content that's put in front of you, and it then becomes kind of an echo chamber so that you're hearing all of the same voices, saying the same things as what you already think. And so diversify. Read differently. Recently experienced this in reading this quote from Martin Luther King. He said, Now I believe we ought to do all we can to seek to lift ourselves up by our own bootstraps. But it's a cruel jest to say a bootless man, to say to a bootless man, he ought to lift himself up by his bootstraps. Martin Luther King just uh, in issues of race and justice speaks with such clarity but it challenged me to think about the idea of, of considering another's person's perspective. Read well. Seek understanding. Remember the gospel. Seek understanding. Love well. Love well. Ask this question. Is this posture that I'm taking to my neighbor, is it loving Christ as Christ loved me? Or is it loving this neighbor as Christ has loved me? Is it seeking to do well to another as Christ has done to me? I wonder if we, if we do this, if we seek to put on the heart of our God, not to say that justice needs to become the center of what we do. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it's an implication of a heart that is fervent for the gospel. A heart that receives grace wants to give grace pray that we might become a church that considers God's heart for justice, that we might be those who orient ourselves to seeking out what God would have us do, seeking to live in a way that honors him. I wonder if you might pray with me to that end now. Lord, we ask that you would honor your name, that you would bring about justice in our midst, not that we would forsake the the doctrine that you've called us to, not that we would leave behind a fervency for the gospel or for evangelism or for community as a church, but rather that we would, as you have, lovingly extend ourselves to those outside of us to seek to lift up those who are downtrodden, to seek uh, to help those who are in need. Lord, we wait for your justice to be brought to the earth And we ask, Father, that you would exalt your name in it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.